0: It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 253 for July 31st, 2011. Portions recorded July 27th. As handy as those free Wi-Fi hotspots are, they're dangerous unless you're prepared. Being prepared means encrypting the connection, and that's not something that most free systems, or even some paid systems, will do automatically. The fix is relatively easy, and the cost is low. Here's the problem. When you connect to a public Wi-Fi hotspot, everything you send and receive is in the clear, meaning that it's not encrypted, and that anyone who has a packet sniffer installed on a nearby computer can see everything you're doing. Packet sniffers are commonly used by network engineers to diagnose network problems so they're easy to find, and some are even free. Now If I were a crook, I might park myself regularly in a large airport and just harvest signals. And if you're in an airport that provides only paid access Wi-Fi, you'll probably also see some apparently free and unsecured networks. Thinking you just beat the airport out of its absurdly high fee, you connect to one of those free hotspots. Later, as you're on a plane at 35,000 feet, the operator of that phony hotspot is using your credit card information to buy a new computer or to raid your bank account. But even if you don't fall for that trick, your information can still be pulled out of the air, unless you're careful. Start by using only the officially provided hotspot. The provider of the service should post signs with the network ID or SSID. And that's the only network you should connect to. If the sign says the SSID is Big Airport, be careful not to connect to Airport or Big A-E-R P-O-R-T or Big Air those would all be phonies just hoping to steal your data next you can turn off any feature that automatically connects to any available network how this is done varies by operating system and by computer so check with your computer manufacturer if you don't need Wi-Fi access you can turn off the wireless subsystem that'll make your computer invisible to everybody It also will increase the computer's battery life. Some computers use a special key combination to toggle Wi-Fi off and on. Usually it's a function key in connection with the key marked FN, while others have a physical switch on the computer's case. If you're using the computer in a public area, you should also turn off shared files and folders. If, despite all your precautions, you do connect to a rogue system or it connects to you, this will at least protect the files on your computer. This is another feature that varies from one operating system to another. You can also install virtual private network software, or VPN. Some VPN applications are free, but if you travel a lot or use Wi-Fi hotspots regularly, features available from paid services will probably be worth the small monthly fee. More about VPN in just a moment. Also keep your antivirus and anti-malware applications up to date. And when you get to your hotel room or when you return home from a trip, it really doesn't hurt to run the scan function just to be sure. The danger is sufficiently large that the Federal Trade Commission, the Justice Department, the Department of Homeland Security, and the Commerce Department have set up a special website to warn people OnGuardOnline.gov. You'll find a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website. The site says users on public Wi-Fi hotspots should take care to use only sites that are fully encrypted. Encrypted sites will begin with HTTPS instead of HTTP, and they'll usually display an icon that suggests security, often a lock or a similar symbol. Using a VPN application will make all connections secure by encrypting the transmission, and several options are available. There is no shortage of choices. Here are a few you might want to consider. Pro XPN. This is my current choice. It works for Windows and Mac computers. There is a free option that's limited to 300 kilobits per second. Now, compared to dial-up, that's a lot, but compared to broadband, it's not. For just ten dollars a month, you'll obtain far faster connections and some additional functional capabilities. So if you use this service a lot, that ten dollars a month would probably be a pretty good deal. Security Kiss has similar offerings, but in addition to Windows and Mac computers, it'll run on Linux machines. The free service is functional, but limited. For about four euros a month, you'll have faster access and more features. Hotspot Shield is another service. It works for Windows and Mac computers. Hotspot Shield failed for me some time ago. The application simply didn't want to work with Windows 7, although it is certified for Windows 7. The free version has limits, but you can avoid those by spending a few dollars a month. Expat Shield is severely limited, I think. It's available for Windows only, and if you select this one, you'll see ads displayed in your browser. This isn't unusual for free VPN options. Hotspot Shield and some of the others do the same thing. There is a Loci VPN client. Again, this is Windows only. Both free and paid services are limited in terms of bandwidth and transfer. For $6 you get 30 days worth of service and 128 kilobit bandwidth with a maximum download size of 100 megabytes. So those are just some of the options available to you. You'll find links to sites for all of them on the TechBiter Worldwide website. If you are a casual user, one of the free plans should be sufficient. But if you travel a lot, or you use local Wi-Fi hotspots frequently, I'd recommend at least considering one of the paid services. It would probably be a wise investment. After a year of trying to deal with Apple's severely defective and deficient iTunes application, I have finally rid myself of it once again, and I can update music on my iPod Touch and iPod Nano. The Nano goes to the gym with me. The touch travels in my briefcase and is always available at the office. Neither has worked properly for the past year because of iTunes. Trouble began when I updated to a Windows 64-bit operating system. Whenever I attached the Nano to the computer, iTunes would start and then crash. And after the crash, the Nano would be empty. Its little screen would just display a forlorn, no music message instead of listing the 1,500 or so selections that had been there. To restore the music, I used Winamp. The Touch also caused iTunes to crash, but at least iTunes left the music and the apps I'd purchased on the device. But I couldn't add music, update apps, or download and install any software upgrades for the Touch. Apple's software engineers designed the Touch so that Winamp couldn't touch it. Well, then I found CopyTran's. CopyTrans Manager is a free application that allows users to add music to Apple devices, including the iPhone and the iPad. So if you're tired of dealing with Apple's bloatware, there's finally an option you can choose. CopyTrans offers a variety of other applications that are not free, These can be used for other management tasks. Currently I'm not using any of them, but right now all I needed was a way to change the music files on these portable devices until they eventually expire. When that happens, I probably won't be replacing them with any other Apple hardware. CopyTrans Manager is really easy to use. Just start the CopyTrans Control Center, which provides an option for settings, and a link to the CopyTrans Manager, and a link to all of the other applications that you can go download and pay for. The manager shows what's on the iPod, and offers the ability to delete existing music from the device, add music to the device, or, and this is interesting, play selections that are on the device. This is handy because CopyTrans has no built-in player that works with music on the computer. For that, you can use Winamp. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll see a screen that shows she and I by Alabama playing, and I'm uploading about two gigabytes of new selections to the touch. Hurrah, finally, at last. When it comes to playing music from the music library, Winamp turns out to be my choice. The iTunes interface is better, I'll have to admit that. But the iTunes annoyances are so severe that the only rational choice, from my point of view, is Winamp. Bottom line, what a relief, I can finally use my iPod again. iTunes is not a particularly beloved application, even among the Mac faithful. Many Mac users refer to iTunes as bloatware and disdain the application for its propensity to lose track of music libraries, crash, and otherwise annoy. That became clear in the past year during which I tried to find a solution to the problem by spending a lot of time on iTunes discussion forums. Neither Mac nor Windows users seem to be particularly happy with iTunes. So it is both a delight and a relief to find CopyTrans. For more information, visit the CopyTrans website. You'll find a link to it from the Checkbiter Worldwide website. For more years than I'd like to claim, I have been using the BAT as my primary email program. It's true that I have to use Microsoft Outlook at the office, and in an office environment, Outlook's calendaring capabilities are a big plus. But in any setting other than an office, the BAT wins wings down. Version 5 is even better. The BATS developers take an unusual approach. When they release a new version, the previous version's registration key continues to work until they reach the .1 step of the new version. When I was preparing this review, the version number was 5.0.16. So my version 4 key continues to work, and will continue to work, until the developers decide they've squished enough bugs to name it version 5.1. The bat is popular in Europe, but it has only a small following in the U.S. Although I understand why, and the why is Microsoft, it still strikes me as illogical for people to use an application such as Outlook, Thunderbird, or Microsoft Mail when something so much better is available. I give office workers a special dispensation for two reasons. First, their IT department probably has mandated Outlook. And second, in an office environment, Outlooks included calendar scheduling and task management operations give it real advantages that no other application has. But the BAT is my choice because it is simply the most flexible email application I have ever found. Every time I ask the developers for a new feature, They tell me that they've already thought of it, and they provide the instructions I need to accomplish my goal. For example, I use a plugin called Anti-Spam Sniper to segregate the hundreds of spam messages I receive daily. The messages all go to a special folder called Junk. I found that when I deleted messages from that folder, they then went to Trash, and I had to delete them again. I recommended to the developers that they make it possible to delete messages from junk without sending them to trash, where they would again have to be deleted. Alexander Petrari replied, and I quote, There's an easy way out. Open the properties of the junk mail folder and go to the deletion item on the left. Then enable use folder specific deletion settings. And finally enable normal deletion. Mark has deleted. Do not use the trash folder. That's all. End quote. Problem solved. Everything should be that easy. Every time I want a new feature, it seems that RIT has already thought of it and that all I need are the instructions on where to find it. So on one level, I don't understand why this application has only a niche following in the United States. But when I consider that using this applications immense feature base requires quite a bit of work to learn how the application really functions, I do understand. Many computer users are unwilling to expend the effort, even though the BAT would make it possible for them to perform actions that they would like to perform and can't do otherwise. What's new, you might be wondering, in version 5? Well, the developers have completely reworked the program's intercommunication mechanisms. Although the BAT has supported the IMAP protocol for a long time, the changes improve IMAP support to make the program more stable and secure. Folder information panels are new in version 5, and these display the dynamically updated information of the selected mail folders. Information displayed is interactive so the user can make modifications, for example, viewing the logging account, editing account templates, and changing the intervals at which the application checks for new messages. The display of images in HTML coded email has always been a security issue, and some programs, Outlook for example, can simply block all images. That is what the BAT used to do. In version 4, it became possible to display images on a message-by-message basis. Now, users can specify rules based on the sender, the recipient, the folder the message is in, or regular expressions, and these will determine when the images are displayed. And version 5 of the BAT uses Intel's advanced encryption standard instruction set to improve the speed of the AES algorithm used in TLS and S-MIME communications. If you're a geek, maybe you understood that sentence. The BAT is complicated, complex, feature-rich. It's a program that cannot be explained quickly or easily. Despite the fact that I've been using the BAT for a decade, I still regularly find that it has features I didn't know existed. The abilities I noted earlier, to control deletions on a per-account basis has been around for a long time. Alexandre Petrari kindly didn't call that to my attention when he simply explained how to accomplish what I wanted to do. But I know that account-specific settings go back several versions. So instead of trying to tell you everything there is to know about the bat, I'll just mention some of the features that I think are important to me With this application, my general assumption is this. Whenever I think of something I'd like the bat to do, the program probably already does it. You'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website an example of the program the way I use it. Message preview pane can be hidden and messages may be organized in many ways or even threaded if you participate in discussion lists. You'll see the junk mail folder, that's a special folder created by the spam add-on that I mentioned earlier. It places any messages that it considers to be spam in there. The trash folder is common to most email applications. It's where messages go before they're deleted. You'll also see some virtual folders. These aren't really actual folders. Regardless of what email address people send messages to, they will be caught and referenced in these special virtual folders. I know several people who have multiple email addresses. I direct all of their mail to these virtual folders, even though the messages may be filtered into other real folders based on the address they used when they sent the message to me. So when I select one of these faux folders, I see messages from many real folders. I have a main account with a bunch of sorting folders that I use to keep things in order. Incoming mail is reviewed and then moved into one of the folders that you'll see there. And this is all done automatically with a series of dozens of filters. At the bottom of the list, one of the most useful functions, tabs for all unread, virtual addresses or important. These are all different views of messages in the various mailboxes. I may want to see all the messages there. I may want to highlight just the ones that are unread. They're highlighted anyway, but I may want to limit the list to just the ones that are unread. I may want to look at messages that are just in virtual mailboxes, or I may want a list of all the addresses of people who have sent email to me. Yes, the BAT will provide that, every address from every message on the system. With most email programs, when you view an email message, you see only what the application wants to show you. Most programs allow you to see some or all of the header information, but the BAT makes it possible to view the entire email data stream. When I do that, I can see parts of a multipart message exactly the way it was transmitted along with the full routing headers. This view often answers questions about the message's origin and its legitimacy. Unfortunately, the BAT is the only email program I know that offers this option. The BAT's filtering mechanism is more powerful than anything I've seen in any other email client. And this is again one of the primary reasons that I use and strongly recommend the BAT. Learning how to use the filtering system, how to create all of those filters, and how to order them may seem daunting, but really it's not all that difficult. All you need to do is determine what conditions trigger the filter, whether it's based on an address, the contents of the message, or whatever and then what the filter should do with the message, whether it should move it, delete it, highlight it, when the conditions are met. So, two things. What are the conditions? What's going to happen? Oh, and there's the options section. You want an application that's flexible? You want one that allows you to define how things are supposed to work instead of defining your work methodology to fit the program? Well, in that case, the BAT is the only email application you should consider. As I often say when talking about the bat, this is probably not the email application for everyone, but if you want to be in control, this is the one for you. Bottom line, five cats, the bat has been my choice since 2000. RIT Labs allows users to download and try the bat before buying it, but the upgrade policy is unusual. If you currently hold a version 4 license for the bat, you may download and use version 5 without charge. When the version reaches 5.1, those version 4 licenses will no longer work, and you will have to upgrade or go back to version 4. That is a very clever way to entice users to upgrade, but it also allows RIT Labs to gain a lot of real-world testing. For more information, visit the RIT Labs website. You'll find a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website. (coughs) In short circuits, Linux 3, is this going to be a big deal or not? Sometimes it's hard to tell what's going on in the Linux world. The Linux kernel is advancing from version 2 to version 3. Some people say this is a really big deal, but Mr. Linux, Linus Torvalds, says it's not. The Linux kernel will soon move from version 2.6, that's the version Linux users have been using for several years, to version 3.0. The Linux community isn't really talking about it very much. Years ago, when the kernel went from version 1. whatever it was to 2.0, it was a big event. So you might wonder why this is not such a big deal. But you may also wonder, Ubuntu is already at version 11.04, so what's all this about version 3? Well, Ubuntu's numbering system is, shall we say, unique. It consists of the final two digits of the year, in this case, 11 for 2011, and the month that it was released, 04 April. The number has nothing to do with the Linux kernel. If you want to update the kernel on your Ubuntu system prior to the next Ubuntu release, you'll find instructions on sites such as the Ubuntu Guide. You'll find a link to that from the TechBiter Worldwide website. As for whether it's a big deal or not, well, maybe it depends on what your definition of a big deal is. Does the program sound a little different this week? If not, never mind. But if it does, I can tell you that I have a new microphone. This is a Cascade Fathead ribbon microphone. And it's the kind of microphone that makes me want to enunciate very clearly, and uh, fall into the old announcer routine, but I'll avoid doing that. Not much of a story here, but I just wanted to let you know that the equipment has changed a little bit. And that actually explains why this week's program was recorded so early. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill blinn Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye bye.